Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For the nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you, told you all things beforehand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your understanding is infinite. And we ask that your spirit would give us understanding of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The key to this prophecy are Jesus' words in verse 30 where he says, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. In the Gospels, this generation always refers to the evil and adulterous generation in which Jesus lived. Which means, this is not a prophecy about the end of the world. This is a prophecy about the end of a world within Jesus' generation. Before the last apostle dies, in other words, there will be a political revolution in Jerusalem. The order of that world will collapse. 
and give way to a new one. Mark chapter 13 is largely a prophecy about the destruction of the temple, which occurred in A.D. 70. Yet, in form, symbolism, meaning, and purpose, this prophecy has a lot to teach us. So as you're here in Mark chapter 13, you go back to chapters 11 and 12. The events in Mark chapters 11 and 12 took place inside the temple. But you see in Mark chapter 13 verse 1 that they exit the temple. And then as you see in verse 3, they make their way to the Mount of Olives. So there on the Mount of Olives, the disciples say to Jesus as they look down upon the temple structure, look. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus then says in verse 2 that all these stones will be destroyed. The disciples then ask Jesus in verse 4, when will these things be? And Jesus answers that question directly in verse 30 when he says, again, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now this is known as the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew's Gospel, it's Matthew chapter 24, that's the parallel passage there. This is the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives as he delivers it. And so picture the scene of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus exits the temple much like God exits the temple in Ezekiel chapter 11. And the chariot throne of God's glory abandons the temple and rests where? On the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus, following in the pattern of Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 11, exits the temple and rests on the Mount of Olives. He sits on the mountain, much like a king might sit on a throne. And it says in verse 3 that he sits opposite the temple because Jesus is in opposition to the temple. And so now, as the new king sits with his disciples overlooking the temple, he's going to predict its destruction. But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than just this building that once stood one day won't. It's so much more than just the fact that this physical edifice will collapse. No, it's so much more than that. It's that the old structure of authority in which God's relationship with his people has been defined through the temple is set to be replaced. Earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus announced that something greater than the temple is here. And of course, he was talking about himself. And so he's here. Jesus, the God-man, prophet, priest, king, Messiah, the one who is greater than the temple is here, and he will replace the existing man-made structure and be, for God's people, something greater than the temple ever was. And so, let's walk through the different elements of this prophecy Verses 5 through 8, let's start there. Verses 5 through 8, the theme here is that the end is not yet. And so verses 5 through 8 are a warning against premature expectation 
so that they will not be led astray, it says in verse 5, so that they won't be fooled by misinformation, so they won't be fooled by fake news. For example, he predicts fake news in verse 6. Some will come and claim they are the Messiah. And we know this happened in the first century. We know from Josephus, the Jewish historian writing about the history of the Jewish people, including in the first century, we know from Josephus that during the time between Jesus' ministry and the destruction of the temple, there were several self-styled messiahs, especially during the years of the Jewish war from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. But even before uh, the Jewish wars, there were people claiming to be the messiah. Josephus mentions Thutis, who is also mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 36. And Josephus also mentions someone referred to only as the Egyptian, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 21, verse 38. And then as you get to verses 7 and 8, mentions wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And some might read that and they hear about wars and rumors of wars and think, well, that's not helpful. That's not unique. This describes every era of history. Why is that a sign? And of course, that objection is exactly right. That objection does describe every era of history, except one. Jesus lived very, during a very unique time in the history of the world. It's known as the Pax Romana. You probably learned about it in your middle school world history class. The Pax Romana is the Roman peace. The Roman peace is this unprecedented time in the history of the world during the Roman Empire for about 200 years where there was peace. It began during the reign of Caesar Augustus in 27 BC and it ended during the reign of Marcus Aurelius in AD 180. And so during that about 200-year period of peace, what is the significant disruption of that peace? Well, the war between Israel and the Roman Empire from A.D. 66 to 70, the end of which the temple was destroyed. And there's not just a war, it's during that time that Nero dies. Nero died in A.D. 68, which leads then to the tumultuous time of the four emperors in A.D. 69, where they just come in quick succession, one after another. See, A.D. 66 to 70 was a time of war during the larger era of peace. It's a time of chaos that interrupted the Pax Romana. And so what Jesus says here in verse 7 and 8 does matter. Jesus gives the disciples what is in fact a real, meaningful, and discernible sign. He's saying, when you see this war, when you see this chaos, this is a sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. And then you see in verse 8, earthquakes and famines mentioned. Well, Acts chapter 11, verse 28 mentions a significant famine during the reign of Claudius. Acts chapter 16, verse 26 mentions an earthquake in Philippi. There was also an earthquake in A.D. 62 that partially destroyed Pompeii. 
There was an earthquake in Asia Minor in AD 61 that was so big that it was felt in Palestine. And there was also an earthquake in Jerusalem in AD 67, in the midst of the war. So now verses 9 through 13. The theme of verses 9 through 13 is the prospect of persecution. So verse 9 mentions that the disciples will be delivered over to governments and have to give witness. Well, did this happen? Well, yes, it happened. We see this documented throughout the book of Acts. We see the persecution of the early church documented in the book of Revelation. The warning about their persecution is given here to prepare them so that they can endure this persecution faithfully. And just think, for example, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, where James, this is the apostle James, is killed by Herod. Well, that kind of persecution was happening all throughout this time period that Jesus is predicting. The early Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire, but they were also persecuted by the Jewish leaders, as we read in the book of Acts. In fact, all of the apostles, except probably for the apostle John, were martyred for their faith. And verse 10 says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Matthew chapter 24, uh, the Matthew version of the Olivet Discourse, it says the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world. And some object to this and say, well, th this right here is proof. This is proof that Jesus isn't talking about the temple because the gospel wasn't preached to all nations of the earth before A.D. 70. They hadn't even discovered North America or South America yet. But understand, when Jesus says all nations, or as it's worded in Matthew 24, the whole world, he is describing the Roman Empire and all the peoples and all the nations that were brought under the sway of Rome's Authority, those client nations or client kingdoms as they were referred to during the Roman Empire. And so Jesus here is predicting that the gospel will reach to the extent of the Roman Empire before the temple is destroyed. And this started in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost and was fulfilled by the apostles. And if you know the history of the, the 12 apostles after Jesus is ascended, they traveled around the Roman Empire, going to different places far and wide, preaching the gospel and planting the churches. We see the example of this in Romans chapter 15. Paul, we're told there, made it his mission to preach the gospel not where it had already been preached. And you get the sense when you read not only the New Testament but some early church history that all the apostles thought this way. And we also know from Romans chapter 15, verse 24, and then verse 28, that Paul made it all the way to Spain. Well, Spain was the westernmost part of the Roman Empire. In Colossians, which was written in the early A.D. 60s, it says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And so you don't even need to know all that history of the early church. You just need to read the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 says that Mark chapter 13, verse 10 was actually fulfilled in the early A.D. 60s. The gospel was proclaimed to all nations in the Roman Empire by A.D. 61, when the book of Colossians was written. So then verses 11, and 13, 11 through 13 say that as they take the gospel, they will be put on trial, 
and even family members will persecute them. And then as we move to verses 14 through 23, the theme of these verses is the beginning of the end. The end is mentioned in verse 7 and verse 13. So you immediately ask, okay, the end of what? Many of you are wondering, the end of the sermon, the end of the service for the potluck. You know, the end of what? Well, it's the end of the temple. The end of the temple and the whole order of the temple. Because remember the question Jesus is answering. When will these things take place? Jesus says these stones are going to collapse. They say, when will these things take place? That is, when will the temple fall? That is, when will the old order, the old world, officially be destroyed? And again, we see in verse 30 that this will happen in this generation. But now in verses 14 through 23, he answers their question more directly. And he speaks of a more specific, invisible sign. This is when Jesus takes the language from the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation. And this again focuses our attention on the temple. Daniel speaks of the abomination of the temple. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 and Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And this abomination of the temple, this abomination of desolation was fulfilled in the first century destruction of Jerusalem and in the temple in A.D. 70. And as we work our way through these verses, the Christians are supposed to see such sacrilege as a sign. And their response is... To escape to the mountains in verses 14 through 16. And then it says in verses 17 through 20 that a time of distress will set in. This is a time of tribulation. And you actually see that word in verse 19, then again in verse 24. This is a time of hardship, a time of tribulation. In fact, Eusebius, the early church historian writing in the 4th century, he said that not a single Jewish Christian fell with the temple. Why not? Because they had heard the Olivet Discourse, and they knew that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple, and they fled just as Jesus instructed. Josephus says of this time, It appears to me that the misfortunes of all people from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. In other words, this is a horrific time. This is a tribulation. Similarly, commentator John Nolan says, Despite the Holocaust, it may still be true that the first century Jewish war was the greatest tragedy ever to befall the Jewish people. Again, the point is that this was a tribulation. This was a horrific moment in history. And in addition to the slaughter and devastation, during this period... There will again be pseudo-messiahs and a real danger of being led astray in verses 21 through 22. But the disciples are to be on their guard, and they have been forewarned, it says in verse 23. Now, some might come to this passage and say, okay, this passage is fulfilled in A.D. 70. That was a long time ago. What could a passage like this possibly have anything to teach us? 
fact, that might be your approach to the entire Old Testament prophets as well. Those Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about things that have already occurred, so they don't have anything to teach us. Well, in fact, not only do the Old Testament prophets have a lot to teach us, but this prophecy about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 has a lot to teach us. And in this passage, we learn two don'ts and two do's. The first don't is don't be detestable. Don't be detestable. When you look back at the abomination of desolation, well, the abomination of desolation is about the religious and moral behavior of God's people. In other words, the temple's being destroyed. God is bringing this horrific, world-ending judgment at the destruction of the temple because God's people, over a period of hundreds of years, turn to idolatry and pollute the temple. Thus, they make the temple detestable. Apostate leaders brought in detestable things that caused desolation, resulting in the destruction of the temple. You just read the Old Testament, you get a sense of their prolonged disobedience, which, of course, was intensified as you work your way up to the first century because at that point they're rejecting the Messiah himself. God used to send prophets, now he sends the Son. They kill him too. So here's what we need to learn. If God's people want to draw near to God in worship, if they want to feel the power of God, if they want to feel the presence of God, they ought to live in a way so as to avoid things that make them detestable. They ought not live in a way that openly and unrepentantly invites the wrath of God. Maybe the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will clarify. If you want to eat at Christ's table then you can't simultaneously eat from the table of demons. If you want to eat Christ's flesh, you can't also be eating demons' flesh. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time. That's detestable. Eating the beliefs of idolatry is eating demonic flesh. And, of course, evangelicals are constantly complaining about how they don't feel the power and presence of God. And they don't need to complain. We can see it plain and clear. There is no power of God. The presence of God seems to be absent. Why? Well, their solution is to turn up the fog machine and add a kick drum. Maybe that'll bring the spirit back. In reality, the solution is to... Repent of your detestable behavior because you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons simultaneously. In other words, if you want to feel the power and presence of God, repent of your pornography for that is detestable of God. You cannot drink from the cup of Christ and the cup of demons simultaneously. If you want to feel the power and presence of God, then Evangelicals, repent of your hookup culture among Christian singles. That is detestable to God. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons simultaneously. If you want to feel the presence and power of God, repent of all the idolatries that live in your head. And idolatries are increasingly making their way into the heads of Christian people through 
the way they're just smuggled into books and sermons and the seminary classes. But if you want to feel the power and presence of God, you need to repent of the ideologies that live in your head. Socialism, so-called social justice, diversity, egalitarianism, all of these things that evangelicals are flirting with, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons simultaneously. And so, what we learn from the destruction of the temple is that when you engage in prolonged and unrepentant detestable behavior, you're not going to feel the power and presence of the Lord. And so the first don't is don't be detestable. The second don't from this passage is don't be anti-Semitic. Don't be anti-Semitic. Now, for you kids, the word Semitic refers to the Hebrews. So to be anti-Semitic is to be against the Hebrews. To be anti-Semitic is to be against Jewish people. And what we learn in this passage is that you should not be anti-Semitic. Christians, listen very clearly. Christians have no biblical warrant to be anti-Semitic. And throughout the history of the church, there's been a lot of bad theology, and there have been various strains of anti-Semitism, and it usually goes through a particular logic like this. They see that God's judgment comes upon the Jews here in the temple, other places as well, and they therefore think that a special and continual curse of God rests upon the Jews, and therefore it's the job of the faithful to bring that curse to bear on the Jews. That's how you get anti-Semitism, through that very bad theology. But you have to understand that this passage completely removes that as a possibility for God's people. There is no special curse hanging over the Jewish people. There is no continual curse hanging over the Jewish people. This is the punishment for the Jewish people. Yes, there's a lot of sin in their history documented in the Old Testament, idolatries and all the rest. Flirting with idols, worshiping false idols, not obeying the Lord and not following the temple sacrifices for the, to pay the penalty of sin in the Old Testament system. And they've been punished for those sins. That's what's happening here in Mark chapter 13. The curse for their Old Testament sins was punished when the temple was destroyed. There is no continual curse that comes to bear on the Jews. And so what do we do then? How do we Christians, of course we're primarily a Gentile congregation here, how do we Christians, Gentile Christians, view Jewish people today? Well, we scatter the seed of the gospel to the whole world, including Jews, and we look forward to a time in history where the Jews, in significant numbers, will accept the gospel, as we see Paul teach in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. And so we need to learn to not be anti-Semitic, and that is a thing that is coming back, especially with young male Christians and so if that's you, if, you, if you've gotten into this idea that, uh, you know, these anti-Semitic ideas, I would love to talk to you. And we can talk about what repentance would look like for you. 
But here's what we also need to learn in addition to that. We see in this passage that the Jews apostatized and were destroyed. Well, churches too can apostatize. In fact, Christ warned the seven churches in Revelation chapters 1 through 3 that they could be destroyed if they departed from Christ. And so this is a warning certainly for the, for the Jewish people in, in first century and all that's going on there. But also this is a warning for us too that God will judge his people when they apostatize. If churches depart from Christ, God will punish them too. And so we see two don'ts in this passage. First, don't be detestable. Second, don't be anti-Semitic. We also see in this passage two do's. The first do is do flee. Do flee. See this in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the ending of a world... Standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The verb flee here is in the imperative mood. So it's a command. Jesus is commanding them to flee. Of course, they're under unique pressure with the destruction of the temple, the Jewish wars, all these things we've already discussed. So then, just imagine you're a Jewish Christian living in Jerusalem in the mid-A.D. 60s, and this war begins. Should Jewish Christians stay and fight the Romans? Should Jewish Christians stay and fight for their country? Jesus said to flee. And you really need to think about this. Because for them, in A.D. 66, to be a good Jew, to be a patriotic Jew, is to stay and fight. If they flee, then they'll be charged with being unpatriotic. To be a good Jew meant to stay. To be a good Christian meant to obey Jesus and flee. This is a moment where their Jewish and Christian identity conflicted. So what about you? What if being a Christian... And being an American no longer reinforces each other. Of course, we've lived in the land of the free, home of the brave. From the beginning of our country, being a Christian and being an American did reinforce each other. That is, they didn't conflict. To be a good American was to be a good Christian. To be a good Christian was perfectly compatible with being a good American. That's how it's been in the history of our country for a long time. But... Because the country is now being redefined in a seemingly irrevocable way, there may come a time when this is no longer the case. There may come a time when being a Christian and being an American doesn't reinforce each other like it has historically. It may be that you are in the same position as the Jewish Christians were in in A.D. 66. And, of course, the instinct of some is to stay and to help fix things and to stop our institutions from crumbling. Save the public schools. Save Hollywood. Save the mainline denominations. Save the federal government. But Jesus shows us here that sometimes 
and understand we're talking about a catastrophic moment in history here. It's difficult for this to be paradigmatic for every time there's a <clears throat> difficult segment on Fox News. This is a colossal situation. This is the end of a world, understand. But Jesus does show us here that sometimes when a world ends, it's best to flee and build a new world elsewhere. And so then the question is, are you ready for that? Are you preparing for that? Because just look at the sign of the times. We need to be thinking about what faithfulness looks like if that situation comes. So the first do is do flee. The second do is do speak and endure. Do speak and endure. So verse 11. And when they bring you to a trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So there we have it. Do speak. When a world ends, do speak. Don't go sit in the corner and be quiet and say, Romans 13, Romans 13, I don't have to say anything. No. Do speak. And then verse 13. And you will be... Hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, do endure. So, when world's in, do speak and do endure. In other words, when the diversity officer brings you before the panel because you are a Christian, when the HR department questions you because you are a Christian, when the college professor or government official calls on you to make your sacrifice, to the new gods, you are being asked to give an account. Come on, it's no big deal. Jesus is accepting. Why don't you call Steve Sheev? Everyone else is doing it. Why are you such a troublemaker, you Christian? Come on. Why don't you put up the pride flag? It doesn't even mean anything. Everyone's doing it. It'll make things easier for you. Come on. Why don't you sign the petition protesting? The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe. Don't you believe in women's reproductive rights? Come on, it's no big deal. Just sign it. Why are you being so difficult? And notice also in verse 9, it says they were beaten in synagogues, which means they were being persecuted by fellow Jews. They were being persecuted by their own people. So that means it very well may be people claiming the name of Christ who are bringing that pressure on you. And they may say, you know, you just don't seem to understand Jesus very well. Jesus is about being accepted. Jesus is about accepting everybody. What are you, a bigot? What are you, a transphobe? Sign this document. Make your sacrifice to the new gods. But what we see in this passage is that Christians are marked by endurance to the living God. Christians are marked by perseverance of faith. And Christians are marked by speaking what is true. And right. And so, when worlds end, when those kinds of persecutions come upon you, calling on you to forsake your God, to forsake your Savior, you must stand firm. This is always the case for Christians. So, Christians in the first century, they endured a lot of persecution. And Christians today should be ready for the difficulty of life, especially when worlds end. In the first century, they endured the collapse of the temple, which is the tribulation that's mentioned in verse 19 and verse 24. But Christians ever since face analogous moments of trial. And so in closing, 
What is the key to enduring? It's not easy to endure when all of the pressures of your religious community, of your family, and of your society come to bear on you. What is the key to enduring when this type of pressure or persecution comes? Well, Christian perseverance is predicated on the fact that Jesus endured suffering and blazed a path of faithfulness for his people. And Jesus gives us his spirit, the helper, to enable our endurance. Jesus Christ endured the judgment we deserved. It is in his death that Christ becomes the door of life for all who believe in him by removing the guilt of the punishment of sin. And so Jesus Christ is the door of life right now. Jesus' death and resurrection is the largest fact of your life. And therefore, Christian, it is the ground of your perseverance. Through faith, you have union with Christ's death and resurrection, which is the biggest guarantee that you will endure to the end. And so, when you are in Christ, you can say, as Christian says in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, before he climbs the narrow path that goes up the hill called Difficulty, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, you who commands and hears prayer, you who helps your people to pray, pour out your spirit of grace that we can be faithful even when it's hard, even when worlds end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.